Six weeks ago, Elon Musk and Twitter agreed in principle to a $44 billion sale. That in principle caveat seems to be getting ever more important. Since the deal was announced, Musk has been trolling Twitter, on Twitter no less, in ways large and small. And as markets have turned downward and Twitter's share price along with it, Musk has started showing serious signs of buyer's remorse. Either that or he is playing out what really has all along been one giant troll. That latter possibility certainly would explain why Musk is tweeting poop emojis at the CEO of the company he claims to want to buy. By the time this airs a few days after we record it, Musk's deal to purchase Twitter might have truly collapsed. Or Musk might have explained that he's going to set the product's terms of service using an elaborate system of coin flips. Or maybe he will have announced that he's going to put Snoop Dogg in charge. Any of that would be fine for our purposes, because what you're about to hear is ultimately not a conversation about Elon Musk. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Although Musk is going to be our foil today at times, ultimately the subject is content moderation and the design of social media platforms and the state of free speech online here and around the world. I'm fortunate to be joined by the perfect pair for such a discussion. One of them is Jillian York. Jillian is the Director for International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She's also the author of Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism. The other person here today is none other than my comrade in arms, Baron Soka, the founder and president of Tech Freedom. Jillian, Baron, welcome. Thanks for having me. As always. Baron, it's been too long. I'm glad to have you back. Um, so each of you has written on Musk and Twitter, as have I, and I find myself generally writing that we should talk less about Musk and Twitter, which, of course, when I write that, um, I am talking about Musk and Twitter. So I guess we're stuck in that regard. Anyway, Musk has haphazardly mentioned things about Twitter that he'd like to change, and I'm going to use that to somewhat structure our conversation, but... Um, I think a better way to think of all of this is to treat Musk's scattered musings um, just as an excuse to discuss the state of content moderation and social media more generally. Um, what do we like about it? What do we not like? What's right? What's wrong? Um, and in that regard, you know, he, he just, he spews out things so... Um, so with such disorganization, and so it's all so scattered, I mean, we can actually go in a lot of different directions. So I guess that's a saving grace. But I'd like to start with transparency. Um, Musk has said that he wants to put, quote unquote, you know, the algorithm online. And uh, feel free along the way to explain the, the problems with that, guys. But either of you, you know, I'd, uh, I, I'm more interested to hear your thoughts on taking that question seriously and, you know, what would greater transparency actually look like? Uh, so Jillian, please start us off. 
Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, transparency, first of all, I got to say, I love the idea of having Snoop Dogg run Twitter. I think we should just go in that direction. Well, um, for context, for <laughs> listeners, he had suggested that if the deal falls through, he might buy it. And then Elon and Snoop were talking online. So I, I didn't pull that out of nowhere, unfortunately. <laughs> well, just, yeah, maybe that would be better, actually. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I missed that one. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. So, I mean, when we're talking about transparency and platforms, and I've done a lot of work on this, um, I'm just going to throw it out there, the Santa Clara principles on transparency and accountability and content moderation, um, which is like a something we launched a few years ago, sort of ad hoc off the sidelines of a conference. And then over the past couple of years, did this huge consultation pro- process with people from like 40 different countries um, and worked together with people from several, you know, fewer countries um, to actually write these. So th- those are up there at SantaClaraPrinciples.org. But we do talk about stuff like uh, algorithmic transparency. Um, and I, I do think that it's really important. I would also say that there's a reason that the algorithms haven't just been like opened up to the public. Um, and I think that, you know, Elon Musk's version of this is really oversimplified. Um, so I won't go into like a, some deep explanation of the principles. They're out there for anybody to read. Um, but a lot of the things that we're looking at when we talk about, you know, automated processes is thinking about like when and how they're used. Um, so, you know, we know that they're being used for to feed us our timelines. They're also being used for content moderation, sometimes without human oversight. Um, So that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about. And then, you know, categories and types of content where automated processes are used, the criteria that's used by them for making decisions and so on and so forth. Um, And I think that that kind of information is actually what's really important to users of these platforms. Whereas, you know, just opening up the black box, so to speak, as good of an idea as it sounds, I'm not sure how well it serves people. I'm not opposed to it, but who who's actually going to be able to dig into that and read it? Um, what does that look like in terms of explainability or really do what we want or it is what we want, something that explains to users something more like the, and I can't take credit for this particular analogy, I forget who came up with it, but something that looks a little bit more like the nutrition facts on uh, a label of food. Yeah, one thing I don't understand, you I mean, there's so many problems. You throw up the algorithm, and if you don't have your sort of data sets and your machine learning models and how those interact, even experts can't tell you much about how that affects content moderation. So that's the first problem. Secondly, average people like me, I'm going to look at the algorithm. It's just going to be a bunch of figures. It's going to be meaningless. So I, I, I too, I was immediately like, well, I'd rather have a, a page that sort of says we uh, downrank Russian propaganda, but don't take it off. Whereas we fully ban this and that. And although I then wonder if that's a problem for the sort of adversarialness of content moderation, it gives too much of an advantage to people trying to game the system. Um, and with that transition, you know, Baron, what do you think? Well, first, I, I want to note that I think Jillian's being too modest here. The Santa Clara principles aren't just some document that that she and some friends put together on the internet, they really are the the best articulation of how difficult this problem of transparency is. And I think it it really speaks to the unseriousness of the conversation that Elon has started and the unseriousness of his approach that he's not starting with that. I mean, it's it's (laughs) as if he's walking into this discussion that Jillian and a lot of really smart people have been engaged in for, for on some level over a decade about how to execute on these ideas that he has as if no one had ever thought of them before. And when you actually look at a document like that, it's not very long. I, I think you start to understand just at a high level h- how complicated these things are. Uh, and 
and what is actually realistic and implementable and, and useful to users. So I'll encourage everyone to look at, at that and, and you'll get a sense of uh, the level of generality and specificity that's appropriate. So just for example, uh, one, the second principle, understandable rules and policies. Uh, I feel bad explaining this because I didn't write this. I was not involved. But, but just to give you an example, this is um, to say that companies should publish clear and precise rules and policies relating to when action will be taken. And then it gives you some examples about what kinds of content are removed, the circumstances under which a user's account will be suspended. These are, these are not uh, specific rules on the level that I think many people imagine. They're, they're more standards and sets of guidance for how to craft rules, but they don't answer all, all the questions. And it's because these questions are extremely difficult. You can't just wave a wand and say transparency and be done with it. And that's what, to a large extent, Elon and most of the people having this conversation are doing, not, not just about transparency, but about uh, following the First Amendment or federalizing the internet. They throw out these concepts, but they don't really have any meaning, those concepts. And the people who are, who are invoking these things don't seem to have thought about them very carefully. So just to take another specific example, the nutrition label concept is something everyone can get their head around. It sounds great. We all see it every day. But when you actually start to think about what that means in practice, you realize that that analogy doesn't go very far. Nutrition labels tell you how many grams of specific chemical substances are in your food, right? They're reducible to objective facts. There are some aspects of content moderation that might work that way, but for the most part, that's not how content moderation works. It's about drawing very difficult lines as to what constitutes one category or another. Nutrition labels don't do that. So I'm glad we're starting here because it, it helps us just set the table for how hard this conversation is and, and how difficult it is to have it as a series of responses to tweets by Elon. Yeah, that's... Uh, and as you and I have joked of all the things, Elon's actually been tweeting a lot lately. And it's, it's, it, it has shades of the days of Trump on Twitter where we're all reacting to whatever his latest wild tweet is. Um, so it's easy, to, it's easy to miss his interaction with Snoop Dogg, but for example. Uh, but one of the things he, he said, actually, I think he said this at an event. Um, no, or maybe he tweeted it. It's all such a mess at this point. But he basically said, you know, yeah, Oh, I'm totally fine with taking stuff down that's uh, bad or wrong. It's like for anybody who's been in this field for years working really hard, I, I, I feel my heart bleeds for you when, when that gets said. Let's move for the moment to another of Musk's uh, sort of superficially appealing, but far more complicated than he makes it sound suggestions, uh, which is verification. So Musk... And he's been using this as, as his potential uh, excuse for trying to back out of the deal. Musk hates bots. And I guess he wants everybody on Twitter to be a human. Um, he has said he wants to make everybody verify their identity, either you know potentially being who they are, sort of akin to what Facebook's policy has long been, or I guess at least, I don't know, putting an ID in or something, and then you can be... Uh, an avatar, but Twitter needs to know who you are. 
um, each of you has written about just the glaring problems with this. Um, I'll plug, Baron, your Tech Dirt piece with Ari Cohn um, on Musk and Twitter. We will put that in the show notes for everyone to check out where you discuss it. Um, but I'll start with you, Jillian. I mean, what are the problems here? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll start by just acknowledging that there's definitely a lot of problems with, you know, bot networks, state-sponsored actors, all of that stuff, um, even just the spam that that a lot of us get in our feeds every day. So that is a real problem, but it's not one that Twitter hasn't been trying to solve. And I think that that speaks to how difficult a problem it is. Um, so, you know, there's, well, I can move back to that, but um, there's a lot of folks who've talked about this, like Alex Damos, who was at Facebook and so on and so forth. And just, yeah, how difficult it really is. But that said, I mean, I think that this is where we have to talk about the harm um, and the trade-offs that come with, you know, requiring people to verify in some way. And so first, what does verification mean? He hasn't really been clear on that. Um, the couple of ways that I've thought about, and this may not be, you know, entirely comprehensive, but a couple of ways that I've thought about are um, verification, you know, some sort of authentication process that involves using, say, a credit card. Well, I think we can see immediately how exclusionary that can be, um, not only to people in the United States, for example, who might be unbanked or have not, you know, otherwise not have access to that, um, but also the number of people around the world who will possibly never have access to that. Um, and so that's obviously a really exclusionary system. And then so you come to something like, you know, sharing an ID with Twitter. So, OK, then you're talking about something like pseudonymous accounts, but where Twitter has access to that on the back end. Again, there's people who will be excluded by that because they don't have ID. But putting them aside for just a moment, let's think about the people who could ostensibly participate in this, but have reasons not to. That's what I've um, written about a lot over the years. And, you know, that includes people um, from transgender people who might not have ID that matches the name um, that, you know, uh, is on their account, um, but also activists in countries where, um, and now I would say including the U.S., absolutely, in countries where it could be a risk um, if their government were to demand information about their account. Um, and I think that that's a lot of us, frankly, and that doesn't mean that we're necessarily doing something harmful or wrong, but, you know, looking at the way that things are going in so many different places, I think that that's a real risk. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of that. I understand why I understand why at this point, you know, there's a need to, um, you know, get rid of some of these accounts that are truly causing trouble, but this isn't the way to do it. Um, and I think that most of the experts would agree. Uh, another of those experts being Baron. So what, what, what I found funny about this is uh, once again, uh, Elon uh, walks in and essentially says, hey, have you guys thought of uh, verifying IDs with, with credit cards or or making sure everyone is uh, is actually who they say they are. I mean, this is this is a flashback to the mid 1990s. We went through this. Congress tried to do exactly that that idea. It's called the Communications Decency Act, of which, of course, one part survived, Section 230, which we talk about all the time on this show. But but the rest of that law said that before uh, kids could access content that might be harmful to minors, the website had to verify the age of that person. To make sure that they were not a minor, which of course meant that you have to verify everyone's age. So technology policy for uh, over 25 years has revolved around this very idea. This idea will not go away. It's something that has been proposed again and again in various forms in legislation. The court struck it down for all the reasons that, that uh, Jillian just articulated. But fundamentally, when it comes to the government doing that, we have a right 
to speak anonymously. So, so when uh, Elon says that he wants to follow the First Amendment and that that should be his guiding star, well, we know how that goes. We, we can look at very clear court decisions that say the government couldn't do that. The government couldn't retain a log of, of everyone's identification. E even if it let you speak pseudonymously and just retain those records, some people would be deterred from speaking because, of course, Twitter would know and Twitter would be in a position where they have to turn over that information, not just to the U.S. government, but potentially to other governments. So let's go back to Jillian's question. What are we talking about here? This is yet another abstraction. Authenticate, verify. Right? It, the answer here depends a lot on what we mean. Maybe he's talking about making it harder to create accounts. I mean, right now it's it's really easy and, and that system is manipulated. And uh, certainly having a CAPTCHA or some basic uh, screening mechanisms to screen out uh, machines, that, that might help. There are some other ways you could do this. You could flag accounts uh, if they are not verified and they appear to be exhibiting uh, bot-like behavior. behavior. But, but these are hard technical engineering questions that we're, we're ignoring when we frame this as a conversation about authentication or not authentication. I, I think that um, what to me is really interesting about this example is whether this deal goes through or not, behind the scenes, there's a team of people in Musk's company who are actually having to, to do due diligence and figure out what is realistic, what is implementable. And if the deal craters, as seems increasingly likely, it's going to be because those people went back and reported, hey, uh, what you say you want is, is not so easy. Uh, here are the options that we think would be realistic, and they're not going to satisfy you on X, Y, and Z criteria, or they're not going to uh, pare down the number of, of bots on the site. I mean, once again, it's it's just we're, we're kind of engaged in this, this high-level theater that isn't really how this is going to be decided. At some level, it has to be about engineers uh, reporting what is being done today and what can be done, and then the people who, who actually are responsible for what we should really be talking about, which is, will this be a site that people want to use? Will it, will it draw in a larger base of people, right? That's Elon's stated goal. And I think that's a noble goal. The question is, is he implementing it in a smart way? And if you implement that in a way that starts to alienate large numbers of users, you're not gonna achieve your stated goal. And, th and then you have to ask also, you can imagine scenarios where you do achieve that stated goal, but you alienate certain people who are on the margins, right? And it's not clear whether Elon cares about that. I think he should. It, it's good to ask those questions now. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I just want to add, because I imagine that there are a handful of people listening to this who would want to see, um, you know, accounts verified. And I think it's also just really important to point out why, or, or, you know, why do we want that and what problem does it solve? And I think there's, you know, there's been a lot of great research out there. I've got a post that compiles it um, that I can, I can shoot out, um, but that, you know, shows that real names or, you know, whatever non-anonymous accounts, they don't make people more civil. They don't necessarily make us safer. Um, and so I, you know, I also have to wonder why does Elon want that so much and how does it benefit him? How does it benefit the public? Um, and I'm not really, you know, I'm not convinced that it does. Well, I, that actually connects to exactly what I was about to say, which is that um, 
Baron is asking a quite, you know, there's this weird tension because Elon basically on the one hand says things about just stuff he thinks he'd like about Twitter. And then at the same time, he has very ambitious goals. We saw this in a, a slide deck that leaked for growth for the service. And those aren't necessarily um, things that are aligned. And one topic that, you know, I haven't put a whole lot in here because again, I, I want this to be a serious discussion that doesn't necessarily get held hostage by Musk, but you know, he's flirted with this notion of just like, well, just make the content moderation match the first amendment. And of course that um, is, is incredibly naive and it fits into exactly what Barron has been saying repeatedly about using a slogan where there's been a lot of complicated thought, but then it also connects to his further point that I think that would be terrible for the product. It would just make Twitter a miserable place. I mean, that's that you could dive deep into all the ways in which it would make it miserable. But um, why is that tension there? And I think part of it is because if you are the richest man in the world with tens of millions of followers, um, who is also one of the most famous people in the world, and you're a super user of Twitter, your subjective personal experience of Twitter is going to be very different from the average user's. So you're actually going to end up living in a weird, twisted, bizarro world bubble where your thoughts on what will improve the product are actually probably really, um, really off. You're actually getting a lot of bad data from your anecdotal experience about what would actually grow the product in general. Um, I think bots is a great example of that. Um, and Jillian is, you, and anonymous users, Jillian, as you were saying, um, you know, bots is actually kind of a complicated issue. I feel like with him, all it means is me, Elon Musk, my personal account gets swarmed by a lot of crypto scams. And so I want to get rid of bots. And there's a lot more to that there. So, um, would either of you care to sort of unpack what we talk about when we talk about bots? Because there's different kinds of bots and there's good bots and there's bad bots. Probably go back and forth on a list here. I mean, you got, okay, so you got your state-sponsored actors. You've got your spam bots, which are just, you know, anything from absolute junk to brands promoting stuff. Um, you've got uh, fun bots, things like, I mean, I remember the old horse ebooks, which turned out to not even be a bot, but you've got bots that are just there to share dog pictures or other fun pictures. Uh, what else? Well, yeah. So, so is it realistic to have a policy where you separate out different kinds of bots or is that a similar situation where you're going to have general categories and they're not going to be applicable case by case? I, to, so let me, let me say first that I don't think we're talking about a real names policy, but, but, but who knows, right? Because mm. we're not having a specific conversation. <laughs> I, I, I think what we're talking about is, uh, is verifying in some way, doing, doing some, something to distinguish between humans and machines and or treating those accounts differently. And, and, and this, is, this is important because I think the most realistic way that this gets implemented is that the algorithm treats those things differently and that you have bots on the site. And I, I follow a number of accounts that are literally labeled bots. They, they, they uh, create fake tweets from a particular person in the style of that person, for example, right now, maybe that thing gets treated a little bit different because it's clearly labeled as a bot from something that seems to behave like a bot, but isn't labeled as such. Uh, there are a lot of ways this could get handled, but they 
they well, what it illustrates is that you really want to treat those things differently. And it's not going to be clear to the user uh, exactly how, how that's done. And I'm not sure how you'd make that clear. It's not a simple problem. And, and in general, this is the consistent theme in everything we're discussing. What Elon says about this seems to suggest that each of these problems is simple and solvable in an engineering way, and then can be explained in a simple, accessible manner. That's just not how content moderation works. It's not realistic to think that we're going to get neat and tidy solutions like that. Yeah, we saw that. I mean, I mentioned the poop emoji at the outset. We've already seen what conversations internally will look like if the deal goes through because uh, Parag Agrawal, the CEO of Twitter, went through this uh, very um, thorough explanation of all that Twitter has done to deal with uh, bots and authenticity and that is what Elon responded to <laughs> with a poop emoji. So I believe it was Ray, I think it was Renee Duresta who said, you know, um, he brought stats to a meme fight. Um, let's turn maybe to Blue Sky. And I've heard you say, Baron, how mystified you are about this, that um, you're taking over or, or in principle, you're going to take over this company. And you make no comments about this potentially revolutionary project that the company's supporting. I think Blue Sky is an independent company now that's funded by Twitter. I think that's right. Um, and going back to, you know, if a person were serious, they would mention, they might start with like, here are the Santa Clara principles. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. Here's what I'd implement. Here's what I'd reject. That would be serious. Even if a bunch of it's like I'd reject and here's why. That, that would be a serious conversation. And likewise, here's Blue Sky. I like it. I don't. I support it. I don't. Here are my problems with it. And we don't hear any of that. Uh, as far as I'm aware, he's never mentioned Blue Sky. Um, so Baron, could you just explain what is Blue Sky in principle? And Blue Sky is not the only effort to do this sort of protocol idea or decentralization that, that you could get into. And then, you know, what the heck is going on? Well, remember Isaac Newton famously said, if I have seen further, it is because I have been standing on the shoulders of giants, right? He, the, the entire model of learning in our culture is supposed to be about recognizing that other people have thought through problems and you can learn from them and build upon them. That, that's how adults handle hard problems. Uh, and again and again, uh, Elon approaches each of these issues as if there is no, as if he's starting from a blank slate. No one's thought about them. There is nothing to start with. So Blue Sky is a great example of this. This is a project that Twitter has been leading now for over three years. Uh, they seeded the project. It's not run by Twitter. They gave money to support the creation of this entity, which is a collaborative body that like many collaborative bodies in the past in the history of the internet is working on creating a new protocol. The internet is really a series of protocols. That's what makes all of the services that we use work today. And this is, this is the latest effort to do that. And, and the concept in a nutshell is uh, today, we have this, this binary debate where people say, I need to have my soapbox on social media. And the response to that is often, but you can speak on the internet. If you get kicked off of social media, the rest of the internet is available to you. And the response is, well, that's not good enough. The rest of the internet doesn't work that way. It doesn't have the, the benefits of social media. Blue Sky is an effort to build a new layer into the internet that would be the layer at which all social media ultimately 
uh, works. And then the services that we use today, like Twitter, but for that matter, any one of the other services you might use, are simply clients for experiencing that layer of conversation. So that layer would be, you could analog analogize it to something like uh, a blockchain. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a data layer uh, at which content exists. And then you have to intermediate that experience through something like Twitter. So in a nutshell, that's what Blue Sky is uh, supposed to do. Uh, it's a hard problem uh, and it's taken some time, but Twitter's existing business plan really is about implementing Blue Sky because they have a strong incentive to grow the size of their network, right? The internet is ruled by a few laws about how networks work. And one of them most famously is Metcalf's law, which says the value of your network is the, is the square of the number of nodes in the network. So, you know, if my network is 10 times larger than your network, it's actually, according to Metcalf's law, it's a hundred times more useful because I have that many more people interacting on my network. And, and Twitter right now, despite all that we talk about it, is actually a small network. It's the 15th largest social network on the planet. It has something like one seventh or one eighth number of active daily US users that Facebook has, which makes it a considerably less valuable network. Of course, the reason Elon wants to buy it is the nodes, the users on Twitter and Facebook are not necessarily similar, right? There are a lot more journalists and influencers on Twitter. So Twitter has some value there. His vision is to grow it into something larger. Of course, obviously Twitter has been trying to do that themselves for business reasons. And, and key to that vision has been creating this layer that, that would unite Twitter and other services so that Twitter's value as a network would grow. Jillian, do you have thoughts on Blue Sky? I mean, the obvious potential downside is, um, okay, so less material can go viral. It's sort of, you know, communities then have to choose what gets pushed forward. It's not just Twitter as one giant enhanced virality machine. But on the other hand, it's decentralized and you're certainly still leaving um, individual communities who are perfectly integrated into the network as a node where they can be the cesspool and share whatever they want and basically be like the 8chan of the network. Um, so is it as promising as it sounds? Do you have objections to it? I mean, is it one of those things where I've seen people kind of across the political spectrum express promise about it. And then as soon as it actually existed, we'd all be just as angry about it. I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that the, the main issue with the, with federated social networks is getting people to move to them um, and getting people to understand how they work and what they mean. I think that that's been the barrier to entry for a long time. And so the promise of blue sky is great because it is a brand that a lot of people trust. It's associated with Twitter. So if we can get there, I'm fully on board. My concern is that it's yet another promise from the Fediverse, um, which thus far has not really served uh, a wide variety of users. I will say- Can I just kind of, did, did you oh, say yeah, I... Fediverse? Because I'd love the to Fediverse. know, uh, that's a new term to me. <laughs> ah, okay. The Fediverse is kind of the, the, just the term that's used for all of these different decentralized platforms. So federated social networks, as opposed to centralized ones, the Fediverse. Love it. Sorry. Proceed. Not related to cheese. No, <laughs> not the feta verse. <laughs> Although that sounds fun. That sounds delicious. 
so Julian, I, I share your skepticism. Uh, I, I think there are reasons to be optimistic that this is moving forward, given that this actually makes a lot of sense for Twitter, uh, for all the reasons I mentioned about network effects. But you, you put your finger on the key concept here. You said a brand people trust, right? That's the point here. And, and Elon himself recognizes that, right? That's why he's buying Twitter. His articulated goal in content moderation is retaining the trust of users. That's really what we're talking about here is what is trust? What does it mean for, for users to uh, trust uh, a service? Blue Sky is, is not, it's not, I mean, there is an organization that's developing the protocol, but it won't be another company. It will be a layer, just like a protocol, just like TCIP is a protocol that the internet works on. Email is a protocol that multiple services work on. And no one has moral agency over what happens there, right? There's no brand that you trust. There's no brand to get angry at. It, it is the network that connects these other services. And from a user uh, perspective, what you need, it, you don't need people to trust or, or be, uh, be okay with what happens on Blue Sky. Just like today, people use the internet, even though terrible things happen on the internet, because there is no one to call at the internet. There's no one to complain to. There's no one to boycott. What people, when people get upset about something, when they see, you know, they hear that there's self-harm content about teenagers being encouraged to kill themselves, for example, they get upset if a company with moral agency decides to leave that up, and rightly so. Advertisers will not advertise on such a service. What Blue Sky offers is a layer at which that content will exist. It'll be part of this, this public conversation, but you, ordinary, sane, decent person, not only don't have to see it, but you don't have to be part of a community that allows it. And that's what Twitter is, in Jack Dorsey's vision, is vying to be, what Elon is saying is, what it sounds like, is we're going to host all that content and users won't really care. Users will continue to flock to us because users are, as you say, Corbin, users are like me. They, they don't really mind if there's that kind of content on the internet, as long as they have a mute or block button. And that's just not a realistic approach to content moderation. You can't, you can't expect individual users to be satisfied with just saying no to particular kinds of content that they don't want to experience every day, they will still be aware of it. It'll still show up on in the New York Times. There'll be uh, embedded tweets of uh, the neo-Nazi march in Charlottesville, right? They have a right to march in public places. I don't want to participate in a community that allows them to march down its virtual streets. Elon, uh, his, his project seems to be leave more stuff up. Um, I mean, he talks in long phrases, I'm a free speech absolutist, benefit of the doubt, uh, only take down stuff that's, uh, I think he at one point he said harmful to the world. So it's, it's a little bit hard to parse, but at the end of the day, let's just put it as his attitude is leave more stuff up. And what's so strange about that, and is definitely an undercurrent of the conversation of the last 10 minutes is it takes Twitter's design for granted. And Twitter is sort of this wacky thing. Um, it's not just the natural state of speech to have uh, retweets where you sort of do this public endorsement of statements 
that then get spread out to your followers and these Twitter flame wars and these dunk tweets uh, in these short little snippets, which sort of encourage uh, the snarky takedown. And um, I'm not saying that we'd all have peace and love if conversations had to be longer, but um, it is clearly true. I'll actually I'll quote uh, Renee Dresta again. You know, she said, um, the incentive structure of Twitter is the dunk. Um, so what you're saying, Baron, you're talking about, you know, Elon basically wanting to upscale that, like, let's just do that. But um, with uh, nastier dunk tweets and more people involved, <laughs> that's kind of the model, which when you describe it that way, instead of just saying I'm for like free speech, it doesn't sound quite as appealing. I mean, it's weird. You could actually do, you could be the, take the Elon part of like, I'm for more free speech under a different model of your social media product, which is interesting because that would be a totally defensible thing to argue for and would be an interesting conversation. And it's just totally lost here. Uh, Jillian, I've seen you note that, uh, you know, this is all getting collapsed into a a binary conversation about leave more up or take more down. So, you know, uh, blue sky apart, Jillian, when you look at Twitter, I mean, should we be talking more about how the product is designed and, um, you know, what are your thoughts on how it's designed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I should note that many, many years ago when I first got into this space, I was looking at some of the worst cases of content being taken down that should not have been. So activist speech, political speech, et cetera. And so, you know, also coming at that from kind of a non-US perspective, this was well before the election of Trump in 2016. And actually it was well before Gamergate for that matter, because I think that 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 turning point sort of counts. So when I was first looking at this, I kind of had a similar approach to Musk that we should be, you know, not taking down speech that was, um, you know, unless it was illegal. And over the years, what I saw was, you know, the rise of harassment on these platforms, the rise of really harmful incitement and other forms of of hateful and let's say dehumanizing speech. Um, So I think that this is, you know, it's not a binary problem. There's a couple things going on. On the one hand, there is a lot of speech that I think we, we, you know, most reasonable people agree should be moderated in some way or another, whether it's taken down, de-amplified, what have you. Um, there's a lot of different paths toward moderating that speech, and it isn't really a simple binary. On the other hand, you know, People are not wrong that there is a lot of speech removed that shouldn't be, including things like counter speech against harassment, documentation of human rights violations in, you know, war zones, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a problem here. Moderation doesn't work in its current format. And I think that looking at, you know, all of these different approaches from decentralization, uh, where people have more control over how content is moderated in their, in their little sphere, um, to changing the architecture so that it makes it easier for people to block or filter out other people or types of content that they don't want to see. One example of this is we know that these platforms um, and Twitter Twitter included, are using um, different types of image recognition technology to automate certain types of content removal. So whether it's nudity or, um, you know, graphic violence, um, those those types of technologies are applied to this. But why not, if the content's not illegal, you know, if we're not talking about, say, child sexual abuse imagery, why not give users more of a say in what they want to see? Why not allow me to click a box and say, I don't want to see nudity, or I don't want to see violence or guns or whatever it is. Um, So I think that there is a lot that platforms could be doing that's beyond this 
you know, beyond this leave up, take down binary that ultimately, you know, does require either really good automation, which we don't have, or usually pretty marginalized people making these content decisions, um, working for third-party companies based in the Philippines or, you know, Arizona or wherever. Um, neither, none of these systems are working right now. So I think it is something that needs to change, but I do think that the Musk uh, vision of it is, and actually for that matter, the Zuckerberg vision of it is um, a little too naive. Uh, yes, one winner in all of this. Mark Zuckerberg must just be watching going, oh, thank God, none of you are paying attention to me. Right? <laughs> um, Jillian, this has been so much fun. Um, as we head towards the close, I would like to bring the conversation sort of into your um, core bailiwick and just talk about sort of the state of uh, speech online, uh, in, you know, uh, across the world and the situation. Um, there are so many directions you could go with that, but um, you know this is what you do. So actually, I'd like to just leave that open and uh, let you take it in whatever direction you want. Sure. Um, so there's a lot here. So I'm just going to focus on a couple of things. Um, so we're seeing a lot of regulation happening all over the world. Some of it's better um, than others. So the DSA, DMA in Europe, not so bad. There's some flaws to it, but there are some good things in there. Um, we're also seeing in Europe and the UK and a number of other places, this sort of um, push toward taking down um, taking down harmful but legal content. So the, the kind of safetyism stuff going on in the UK and, and some other Anglo countries, um, as well as the new proposal in Europe, and, and I'm not the expert on the details of the proposal, but I'll give the broad strokes, um, around child sexual abuse imagery that would actually, for you know maybe the first time, require um, some proactive monitoring of, of content um, and proactive takedown without, without reporting. So there are there is some damaging stuff going on there. But I think if we broaden this out to the rest of the world too, we're seeing some really troubling things. Um, there was a social media bill from Ghana, for example, a place that not a lot of people pay attention to in this space, um, but that would actually require the censorship of uh, certain LGBTQ speech. Um, we're seeing, you know, pretty horrible things going on in some parts of Europe as well. Um, and of course, you know, you got the whole rest of the world. And so I think that the kind of broad strokes of that is I'm really worried that, again, we're moving toward a fractured, um, I hate the term balkanized, so I won't use it, but people are familiar with it, but a fractured internet um, where people's vision or people's um, access to not only these platforms, but to the broader internet itself is going to be different depending on where they are. And that really, you know, it, it creates an unlevel playing field. Um, it puts us in a position where, you know, kind of a pre-internet position for a lot of people in terms of access to information. Um, and so I am really worried about a lot of these, these regulatory actions. And I'm also concerned, you know, in Europe that while, again, some of this policymaking is good and perhaps necessary, um, that I guess my, my sort of main takeaway so before I keep rambling is that I think that policymakers in the US and Europe need to be listening to the rest of the world and including them in a lot of these conversations because the internet is global and any regulation um, that comes out of any of these spaces is going to affect and impact people the world over. Uh, Jillian. That's a lot, that, I know. <laughs> no, that was fantastic. That's, a, that's, that's exactly what I was hoping for. Um, and then um, also what are you working on these days and what do we have to look forward to from you? Is there anything that is on your mind that you'd like to share uh, as a preview or, or to point to for our listeners? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we've got a new site up at EFF um, called Tracking Global Online Censorship. It's at onlinecensorship.org, which some folks might be familiar with because that was, in fact, the URL of a prior project. So this is second iteration. Um, but really what we're trying to do there is bring together the work of a number of people, um, again, globally, um, get some of your stuff up there as well, um, to, yeah, to show what people are working on around content moderation and to look at the impact of um, some of these regulations on people all over the world. So that's going to be a home for a lot of that. It's it's kind of bare bones at the moment, but we're still building it out. Thank you. And Baron, uh, I mentioned the uh, the Musk tech dirt piece uh, earlier. So there's definitely that that threads through um, several topics of this episode. But uh, same question to you. What's on your mind these days? Is there anything you want to preview? Well, I'll just note that uh, we've used a lot of keywords here today. Uh, Jillian said another one of them, which is architecture. I mean, that, that's really what we've been discussing. What is the architecture of social media? Is there another layer? How do these services work? Uh, how does it work down to the level of the design of retweeting and liking? I mean, Corbin, you described very well that uh, we, we take these things for granted. But this, is, this is just a particular iteration of what social media could look like, and it, it could be very different. And uh, I think it behooves all of us to keep an open mind about how these things evolve I mean, more than anything, I would say that this, this experience has, has made me go back and reread uh, Virginia Pistrell's wonderful 1998 book, The Future and Its Enemies, uh, which is all about what she calls dynamism, the, the openness to experimentation and learning and remembering that the, the particular state of technology is, is just, just that. It's the particular state of technology. And we don't know what the future is going to look like as much as these these laws that Jillian has described matter around the world. Uh, it also really matters how these services evolve. It matters whether this deal goes through and, and how thoughtfully uh, Twitter implements some of the ideas that have been proposed. So let me let me say this. I'm thinking about what happens next for Twitter, whether uh, Elon buys it or not, whether someone else buys it. Uh, I'd like to see them implement on Dorsey's vision, both parts of it, both the building out that that public conversation layer, and also taking seriously what it means to do uh, content moderation to build healthier conversations online, while also trying to really do the hard work of implementing those Santa Clara principles about transparency. And, and I, I fear, and Corbin, you've written about this really well, I fear that our, our cultural discourse about these topics has become so heated and, and so irrational that it's really become increasingly impossible uh, for these services to continue to evolve in the way that they have in the past, where they've there's been this, I think, generally healthy, it's not perfect, uh, there's a lot of problems, but a generally healthy feedback mechanism uh, that has allowed these services both to grow, but also to build out the teams that have, have actually done the hard work of drawing lines. I mean, we can say that, you know, X and Y and Z categories on paper should be handled in a certain way. But what that actually takes to implement at the end of the day is humans. Some people to write algorithms, some people to do content moderation. We've seen what happens when there aren't humans involved, like in Myanmar, where uh, Facebook and other companies just didn't have people who spoke the language and knew what was happening on the ground, right? So taking these things seriously means building out a capacity to deal with those problems uh, and and not simply waving your hands and saying that you're going to just uh, slash the content moderation team down because uh, 
you're not interested in that subject without really understanding what it meant for a genocide, for example, in Myanmar to be driven in part by freewheeling, unmoderated conversations on social media. Or, or to take one final kick at Elon Musk in the shins, or just throwing up your hands and saying, oh, we're just perfectly happy to follow the laws of any nation um, without question, um, as he said, which is totally contradictory to his, his fight for free speech. And he clearly doesn't even understand what the law is in the US. And I, it, our, our piece that, that Ari and I did is, is very long, but I just, I think the one, most telling moment to me is where uh, Chris Anderson from from TED is interviewing him and says like, oh, well, what about shouting uh, fire in a uh, crowded theater? And Elon says, oh, well, of course that's unlawful. So of course we don't want that. Well, of course that, that's not unlawful. That's not how the first amendment actually works in the United States. That's a hundred year old Supreme Court decision that was, uh, was discarded long ago. In fact, the first amendment allows people to, to do things like that. And he will, Elon will discover if this deal goes through and his, his people doing due diligence now will start to understand just how very difficult it would be to draw those lines under the First Amendment. And, and the, I think the way that I put it in the piece is uh, just saying the First Amendment really hides the ball because there are lots of subjective decisions that have to be made here that are always going to have to be made. The best we can hope for is that they are explained in a way that is understandable on a high level and that that the sites continue to iterate. Well, thank you, Baron. And yeah, your mention of culture, I'll go ahead and, and plug myself just quickly. Yeah, I, I wrote a piece on, so conservatives, I mean, whatever that term means now, you know, I, I think of like Russell Kirk or like Roger Scruton, these people who are into the concept of order and community and like civility and, and it was just sort of a brief meditation on like, why aren't conservatives the ones saying, let's have a healthier conversation online and more civility and respect and community. And it's weird that we're in this contingent world where that's not, you know, the conservative position is like, let's have more anarchy and harassment. Um, and I, it goes online, of course. And of course, you know what happened. It went on Twitter and people on the right were like, you have no understanding of, of the culture. Like it's this Manichaean struggle and we, you know, it's all about fighting. And I was like, thank you. Yes. I didn't know that there were people who had that attitude. I, I, gee. Um, so I don't know. Let's, let's hope for, <laughs> let's hope for a toning down of some of that rhetoric. Anyway, thank you both. This has been great fun. Uh, it was a privilege to speak with each of you. I'm very fortunate on this show to, to have such intelligent guests that I get to talk to and just pick their brains. I, I feel fortunate. And um, we are recording this across like eight time zones, nine time zones. So um, I am actually super early in the morning and I can now hear my kids screaming. They are up so it's time to, to wrap it up and, and go uh, start the day. So thank you, guys. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Been joined by Jillian York of EFF and Baron Soka of our own Tech Freedom. I am Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. Uh, anywhere you listen to this, please rate us five stars. It helps us out. Um, and with that, I will bid you adieu. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you, guys. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.